the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here. I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. And we have Stephen M. R. Covey on the podcast today. I read his book, The Speed of Trust, about a decade ago when it came out. So influential in how I lead my team. And uh, he, of course, is the son of Stephen M. R. Covey. And we're going to talk about how to scale an organization beyond its founder, growing up in Stephen Covey's home. Yes, the Stephen Covey of the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and how to create high trust teams. Today's episode is brought to you by Pro Media Fire. You can get your communications and creative work done for less than a staff hire by going to promediafire.com slash carry and by Compassion International. Meet a practical need for a child in poverty this holiday season. Yep, not too early to think about Christmas by going to compassion.com slash tree slash carry. More about that in a minute, but uh, man, I'm so excited to have a conversation with Stephen Covey. Stephen M. R. Covey is the New York Times and number one Wall Street Journal bestselling author of The Speed of Trust. He's also the author of the new book, Trust and Inspire, How Truly Great Leaders Unleash Greatness in Others. He brings to his writings the perspective of a practitioner as he is the former president and CEO of the Covey Leadership Center, where he increased shareholder value by 67x and grew the company to become the largest leadership development company in the world. He has a Harvard MBA and he co-founded and currently leads Franklin Covey's Global Trust Practice. He sits on numerous boards, including the Government Leadership Advisory Council. He's been recognized with a Lifetime Achievement Award for top thought leaders in trust from the advocacy group, Trust Across America, Trust Around the World, and he's a highly sought-after speaker who has taught trust and leadership in 55 countries to business, government, military, education, healthcare, and NGO entities. And today, we're going to sit down and we're going to pick his brain on all things trust, Stephen Covey, what it was really like to grow up in Stephen R. Covey's home, and so much more. I don't know about you, but The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People has uh, been a formational book for me, as it has for millions of others. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Welcome to all of you who are new. If you enjoy it, leave a rating and review. And we want to thank everybody uh, for making this podcast what it is. Every single month it grows, and that's because you keep sharing the message. So a question for you, for those of you who lead churches, small businesses, and nonprofits, have you been hit by the challenge of inflation and staff leaving for higher paying jobs? Because staff turnover is at an all-time high. In the communications, media, and creative departments, it's now 30% annually. Well, there is a way to get your communication and creative work done for less than the cost of a staff hire with Pro Media Fire. There's no cost of health benefits, payroll tax, and no risk of scrambling for help with a two-week notice. So if you want Pro Media Fire's help with any of the following, custom website design, complete social media management, graphic design, video creation, digital growth strategy, get a free consultation today. Here's all you do. Go to promediafire.com slash carry. That's promediafire.com slash C-A-R-E-Y. Simply my name. 
Also, leaders, I love Compassion. I love what they do. Our church has partnered with them. When I was the lead pastor of Conexus, we partnered with them. We still do. My wife and I, we support a couple of kids around the world. But what you may not know is that in all 26 countries where Compassion works, they partner exclusively with local churches to release children from poverty in Jesus' names. The local church is the hero. So if your church wants to partner with the local church, well, the holiday season is a perfect time to get started and it's not too early to plan. Compassion has a real cool opportunity called the Giving Tree. It's a simple way for your church to share the love of Christ with children in need by decorating a tree with ornaments that represent a variety of gift options. Each gift is designated to meet a practical need for a child in poverty. You can check it out. So here's what you have to do. You have to think about this for a second. Okay, go to compassion.com slash giving tree slash carry. So that's compassion.com slash giving tree slash C-A-R-E-Y. You can request a free ornament kit from the website, set up a tree in your church lobby, and invite families to be part of changing lives with their giving. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. Well, without further ado, here is my conversation with the one and only Stephen M. R. Covey. Well, Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Carrie. Hey, great to be with you. Excited to be on this podcast. I'm super excited you took the time. So you got a brand new book for those who are watching. It's called Trust and Inspire. And uh, it's all about how true, truly great leaders unleash greatness in others. Um, but I want to pull the camera back a little bit to get started. So you dedicate the book to your parents, Sandra and Stephen R. Covey. A lot of people would know your dad's work as well as your work from The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which probably has to be one of the best-selling leadership books of all time. Is it not now at this point? I, I think it is. It's, it it's is, yeah. got some 40 million copies and and I think forty eight languages, so so uh, yeah. And it, and the interesting thing about it, Carrie, is that it was published in nineteen eighty nine initially, but it continues to sell, you know, huge huge amounts every year. So it, oh, it's, when I it's look at the evergreen. the top one hundred leadership books, it's almost always in there, and yeah. uh, that's amazing. It's like we had. Um, uh, Gary Chapman on and the same thing with yeah. the five love languages. Absolutely. He told me we were at an event once and he's like, yeah, it sells more copies every year and we don't know why, but that's a great it's, book. And it's, it's because of word of mouth and, yeah. and, and the word of mouth happens because I'm speaking of five love languages. It's so relevant. So practical. Oh, yeah. People hear this, that what's your love language? And they, I want to learn about this. They, they get it. And and so they they pick it up, and I think the Seven Habits has had a similar thing. It's I think to, it's more relevant today than ever before in a topsy turvy world to you know to kind of get a sense of who I am and you know the idea of a private victory preceding a public victory, independence preceding interdependence, and you know just this whole process. I think it's extremely timely and relevant because it's based upon principles that that are timeless. Yeah, beginning with the end in mind, working on your business, not in your business, all of those things are yeah. so, so helpful. So I, I want to start with with childhood. I don't go there with every guest, but I would imagine that growing up as uh, in Stephen Covey's home was not a typical childhood experience, or, or maybe it was, um, because he, he writes about you and your siblings in The Seven Habits. You know, you're probably still at home back in the day, or he's remembering a time when you were. Um, did you know early on that you had a different kind of mother and father? Um, 
Probably, yes. I think that, you know, it was all I knew at the time. Mm, So in a sense, I didn't know any different initially. But and and at the time when I was growing up, um, my father was less known than he he was later. And so I didn't and he wasn't writing the stories, the books yet. But um, but I but I knew he was I knew both my dad and my mom were good dad it was, it was they were good parents because yeah. uh i all the other kids in the neighborhood seemed to love to come over to our house and they would say things like your dad your mom they're so great and and i was i just assumed everyone's dad and mom was great and and you know but that's not always the case it's mm-hmm. and not often the case and and um and so kind of over time i I, I, as a young boy growing up, I, I started to realize that I've got it pretty good. I've got great parents and, and, uh, and not everyone does. And that's a blessing. And so, you know, over time I, I, I came to realize that, um, uh, maybe, it, maybe I, I didn't know it initially because that's all I knew. But over time I started to realize I'm, I'm pretty fortunate here to have such great parents. You tell a story at the beginning of Trust and Inspire, and I think it's a full circle because your dad told a similar story in one of his (laughs) books about, I think you were about seven years old, and he wanted you to cut the grass and took a very different approach than I would have taken (laughs) with my kids. I would have been, why didn't you cut the grass? You know, Uh, but tell me, tell me, uh, tell us about the way he approached it, because I thought it was just brilliant. Yeah. In fact, I kind of um, say this is what I mean by trust and inspire. It's what I what I experienced as a child, and and uh, what it was was he wanted it was actually to 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 uh, um, water the lawn and take care of it. This is back in the days before automatic sprinklers, so that was a big yeah. deal back then. And we had three separate, you know, patches of grass and three separate sprinkler systems. And it was a big yard. This was a pretty big yard uh, lawn. So, but basically rather than just kind of dictating and saying, Hey, do this, do that, you know, I'll direct you just kind of mandate or, or command it. (laughs) Instead, he, he, he said, I want to turn this job over to you. You own it. You're responsible for it. So let me train you about what the job is and, all I care about is the outcomes, the results. Mm. I want the lawn to be green. I want the lawn to be clean, green and clean. Now, how you do it is up to you. You decide. All I care is about the outcomes. Now, if I were you, he said, I'd turn on the sprinklers <laughs> because <laughs> that would be the most efficient way to do it. But you don't have to. You could use a hose or even buckets or spit all day long, <laughs> as long as the <laughs> as long as the yard is green and clean. So he, you know, he he was empowering me and delegating outcomes, results to me, not methods, not supervising methods, and not supervising me, but rather empowering me. But then he also built in some accountability into this. Um, said, and let's also do this. Let's how about if once a week we walk the yard. And then you can tell me how you're doing. I'm not going to judge you. You judge yourself. But let's judge your, you can judge yourself against green and clean. And, and so he built in accountability, built in kind of the outcomes, the expectations, and then he turned it over to me. And again, I'm seven. This, you know, I mean, you're seven. You're just playing ball in the, in the neighborhood. And, and uh, 
And at first, Carrie, at first I did nothing <laughs> for like five <laughs> days in a row after turning it over to me. And it was in the middle of the summer and it was scorching hot. The lawn was turning more and more yellow by the day. <laughs> and and uh, there was garbage strewn everywhere from a neighborhood barbecue we held. So it was anything but green and clean. And my dad said that he came this close, just, you know, just so close to just taking the job right back. Pulling thinking, a dad move. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Just, <laughs> just too young. You know, what was I thinking? He can't do this. And, but he didn't, he stayed with it. He said, well, let me, let me go back to what we agreed. And he said, Hey, why don't we walk around like we agreed and you can tell me how it's going. So we began to walk around and I looked around and I realized this is not green and it's not clean. It was, it was <laughs> yellow, it was messy. And I began to break down and cry. And I said, dad, this is just so hard. <laughs> and he said, well, what's hard, son? You haven't done anything yet. <laughs> but, but what was hard was me kind of learning to, to take this responsibility, to own it, to take, to take responsibility and initiative to own this. And, and I said, I said, would you, would you help me, dad? He said, what was our agreement? I said, well, you told me you'd help me if you had time. Because that's right. Do you have time, dad? I've got time. I said, oh, good. So let me, I ran into the house. I got a couple of uh, garbage sacks. I came out. I took one. I gave him a garbage sack. And I said, dad, would you go pick up that garbage over there? Because it kind of makes me want to vomit. <laughs> and he <laughs> says, hey, I'm your helper. Whatever you want. You tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. I have time. So I began to instruct my dad on what to do. And it was at that moment that I realized, you know what? This is my job. I own this. Look, I'm directing my dad. He's my helper. I'm responsible. I'm, uh, this is my job. And, and at that moment, it kind of got written into my heart where I took responsibility and I owned the job. And, 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 um, and the rest of that summer and many summers beyond that, the lawn was green the lawn was clean. I owned it. I didn't need to be reminded about it. I took responsibility, you know, as a young seven-year-old. Now, my dad would tell this story in Seven Habits and other venues where he'd, he'd talk about this being a good example of stewardship delegation or a win-win performance agreement. And it was those things, but I was seven years old. I didn't know what those, <laughs> what those words meant. But Carrie, yeah. here's what I knew as a seven-year-old. I felt trusted. Mm. I felt my father trusted me and I didn't want to let him down. And I was inspired by that. And I, I rose to the occasion and I, and I developed capabilities and I learned responsibility and I took initiative and, and, and kind of responded to the trust he gave me. He treated me according to my potential, not just according to my behavior. Cause at first I was doing nothing. And I responded to it and rose to the occasion. And, and I just realized in retrospect, as I look back on it, you know, I had a trust and inspire parent, someone who, mm. who believed in me, who saw my potential, who communicated to me my potential so I could come to see it, who then gave me opportunities to develop it and to really unleash me in a way. And he later said, you know, when he thought about this, when he was going to just take over the job, take it back. He said, what's my goal here, really? And then he, and he kind of said, it's to raise kids, not grass. Mm -hmm. And you know, so that's my real goal. And I want my son to learn how to 
to own, to take responsibility more than I care about the yard. And, and so it's a great example. And again, it's low stakes because if the lawn is not as green and clean that, you know, that's not life or death. And, and, um, but the principles apply not just to doing yard work, but really to any task, any outcome we're trying to achieve through people, where we empower people, where we extend trust to people. If you clarify expectations and agree to a process of accountability, then you build an agreement and the agreement can govern as opposed to you having to hover over and micromanage a person. Because no one likes that. No one likes to be micromanaged. But they like to be responsible with, with, with clear outcomes and with a process for accountability that they've agreed to, that they were part of creating, brings out the best in all of us. And I think that that's, it's just a good model of a trust-inspired leader as a parent. I think you can apply it to really all walks of life. And in some cases, the outcome, you know, the green and clean lawn, the equivalent of that might be more important than, than it was to my dad, the actual outcome of our lawn. But the point is, you always want to get the result in a way that grows the people. And that's mm-hmm. what trust and inspire is about. Command and control is just getting the result through people. You use people to get results, and push to the extreme, you could use them too much and uh, and you know go too far and just they're just a means to an end. Trust and inspire is saying people are are an end in and of themselves. We want to get results in a way that grows people. I experienced it. You know, at a young age with my with my dad. I'd say the same thing about my mom too. She was very much trust and inspire. I want to ask you about your mom. You know, I just gotta say for the record, I, I know the book was out before I had my kids, but I wish I had taken better notes because I, I would love to go back <laughs> 25 years and and use that uh, strategy with my kids rather than command and control. What did you learn from your mother? Many things, but my mother was fiercely loyal to her kids and she believed in her kids and she helped them come to believe in themselves because of her confidence that she had. And you just felt it. And, you know, I mean, you'd have you having a hard day at school and, you know, she just right there, she'd take your side. It's interesting. My dad and my mom would kind of, they were very complimentary. You know, my dad would say things like, you know, take responsibility and you know you you own this don't you don't blame the teacher my mom would be more like saying oh that teacher I, you know, <laughs> what's wrong with it i you know i i'm in your corner i'm with you and you want you liked both you loved how my mom made you feel that she was in your corner she had your back but my dad also was saying hey you know don't be reactive, take responsibility. And the combination of both, and my mom was also teach the same principles, but with my mom, you just knew that she was, she believed in you, she affirmed you, she had confidence in you, and, and she had your back. She was fiercely loyal. And, and, um, and that was, you loved feeling that way as a child. Yeah, you totally would. Um... So a lot of leaders listening are in the public spotlight. A lot of them are pastors, they're CEOs, they're small business owners. And that means they're kind of on when they're in public. And as you said, your dad became better known as you got older. But you had some element of public spotlight growing up. And you watched your parents steward that or handle that. 
What did you learn from your parents on handling the public spotlight? And then what would you say to leaders who are listening, who are trying to navigate that tricky ground of raising their kids in the aquarium, so to speak, where everybody can see in through the glass? Like any any tips or, or things you learned along the way about doing that? Yeah, a couple of thoughts on that. And I think it's an important question, Gary. Um, the first is that, you know, we're all human. We all, we all, none of us are perfect. My parents weren't perfect, perfect either. And so you're not trying to pretend and, and put on a front that's inauthentic, that's not real, just for the sake of appearance. And sometimes when you're in the spotlight, it's kind of easy to say, I've got to have this public persona that's perfect. And then there's sometimes a disconnect in, with your private life where it's not so perfect and none of us are perfect. And so mm. being just being real and authentic and human and, and um, um, all the time and not one person in public, another person in private, but the same person as best you can, an imperfect human being, but one that's trying, trying to get better and improve. My, my dad and mom uh, shared an experience that my dad wrote about in Seven Habits. I'll just give a short, shorthand version of it where one of my younger brothers, so now they're becoming a little bit more, better known. He was kind of a late bloomer in life, a little bit um, you know behind his age group at first. And, and so it was a little bit socially awkward and everything. And, and at first my parents were you know, a little bit embarrassed that he was not developing as, as, as clear. And they, they let the social pressure, you know, of kind of being known as, because my dad was at this point starting to get some reputation and, you know, and, and, and yet here's a, a child that was struggling a little bit and mm-hmm. wanted to convey that, Hey, we're good parents and we know how to raise kids. And, and so they're a little bit, they let the social pressure, my dad writes about it saying that we started to be concerned about what other people thought. And then we came to and realized it doesn't matter what other people think. How do we see our own son? How are we seeing him and communicating that to him? And if we see him as, as, as slower in developing, then we're perpetuating this very thing. Let's look at his unique gifts and strengths and talents and believe in him. And they, they just said they, they quit worrying about, external appearance and they focused on just seeing the potential in him seeing the greatness and the talent and treating him according to his potential and not worrying about what other people thought and it changed everything and and um and he was he was just a late bloomer and he 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 bloomed and he was extraordinary he was you know he became in 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 high school you know this all all state football player, you know, all province equivalent football player and, and a track star and a, and a a leader in the student government and a perfect student and great Mm -hmm. friend. I mean, he, he blossomed completely, but my parents kind of had to go through their own process of not worrying about perception on the outside of being perfect, but instead just believing in their child, communicating that belief to to them and helping them see it in themselves and, and, the, and develop. And so that was kind of a learning thing that my dad write, writes about in seven habits that uh, he had to focus more on the benefit of his child, not on how other people might perceive everything. 
So that's the great insight. But the other insight I'll give you, so my dad really did get good at this to where he had real uh, integrity. And and um, one way of looking about honesty and integrity, honesty is when your words match reality. You know, you're telling the truth. Your words match reality. Integrity is when your reality matches your words. Mm-hmm. You, know, you are who you say you are. And so that's integrity, that your reality is, you know, you are who you say you are. You you do your best to walk the talk. At my father's funeral, here's what I shared about him that is maybe the kindest thing I could say, but also the most accurate thing. And it's simply this, Carrie, that as good as my father was in public, Mm. as an author and as a teacher, and he was very, very good, as good as he was in public, he was even better in private. As a husband to my mother, as a father to us kids. Mm. He was who you thought he was. Sometimes people can, you know, stand up in front of an audience and give a great presentation or sermon or you know, or um, facilitation, whatever it might be, and just wow an audience. And then they walk off stage and they're like a different person in how they treat other people. Well, my father was, he was good on stage, even outstanding. And he was even better off stage of how he treated everybody, everyone with respect, everyone with kindness, who take an interest in everyone. I get people to this day, 10 years after his passing, that come up to me and say, can I tell you a story about being with your dad? I was just mm. the AV guy. And, and, and yet he talked to me and listened to me. And he asked me about my family. And, 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 but more than anything, he, I felt like he cared. And he really listened. And then I ran into him at another AV event and he remembered me and, and asked about my child and the things I told him. He goes, I just can't believe this. And I, I hear this frequently, Carrie. And, and so my, my point is, you just try to be authentic. They're the same person, you know, we, we align our, our public life with our private life and our inner life. None of us are, none of us are perfect, but we're, we're trying to, um, to be, not to seem. And that was, it's a process of being. And, and, uh, but it's very easy to, to want to seem one way and we're not, and, and I think it's a bigger idea to say, let's try to be who we are and be authentic and align our private, our public, our private, and our inner lives. Well, I think, you know, I've read The Seven Habits a couple of times, but I'm pretty sure it's in The Seven Habits. I'm a little rusty on it, where your dad talks about the funeral and what people are going to say and to sort of look yeah. ahead to that moment about what you want people to say at your funeral and then reverse engineer your life and your character and your habits Accordingly, is that is that right? Is that an accurate remembrance? He does. It's 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 part of yeah. habit too, mm-hmm. of begin mm-hmm. with the end with in the mind. End in mind. And, yeah, and you know, he said, "Look at it at your funeral. What would you like people to say?" And you know, from different walks of life about you, and that kind of reflects really what your maybe your most important values are, because you know, would you want them to say he focused on just making money, or would you want them to say that? He focused on making a difference and contributing and these different things. And he later kind of amended it from his funeral and said, 
Okay, it's your 80th birthday. <laughs> Just so oh, that okay. it wasn't so you get to hear it. at the end of your it. life. <laughs> yeah. A little bit more positive of, of, okay, your 80th birthday, there's a special celebration and you got people that are going to stand up and talk about you from different walks of life. What do you want them to say? And that was his more happy, happier way of, of doing the same idea. But it's I really it's kind so of, encouraging. Yeah, just to begin yeah. with the end in mind. What is it that's most important to you? And, you know, he, 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 he would say things like, you know, no one on their deathbed ever wished that they would have spent more time at the office. <laughs> you know, because probably what matters most to people is relationships not things. And, and, uh, and then he also was fond of saying life is about contribution, not accumulation. You know, it's just, it's just a mindset of always contributing, focusing on the relationship. And, and, and he modeled it again. I don't want to present my dad as perfect because he struggled too, like all of us. And you don't have to be perfect as public figures. You just have to be real and authentic and and trying and coming back to what you, you know, if you teach something, you need to believe it and do your best to live it. And on another occasion, Carrie, my father was asked, so Dr. Covey, do you live the seven habits? And he said, about 80% of the time. (laughs) Because I I try 100%, but I fall short. But when I fall short, I, I try to course correct as best I can but about 80% of the time. And he's kind of saying, look, I'm, I'm, I, I struggle too. And, you know, but I believe it and, I'll, and I come back to it time and time again. What were some of his struggles? Like looking back on it, what were some areas that, uh, you know, to the extent that you're comfortable sharing, you would say, yeah, that was, that was something my dad had to keep working on for years. Yeah. Well, early, this is uh, when, when uh, he was younger as a parent, you know, he, he was not as patient, struggled with patience and, and he could get frustrated. And I remember we'd go on family vacations and his goal was to leave at eight in the morning, you know, so we, and in everything, and we'd end up leaving at two in the afternoon because no one was ready and, and, and everyone, you know, and he was trying to get out and, and, and he'd have all these great plans and, and, uh, and he just gets so frustrated of no one being ready and, and taking so long and this and that. But you know, but he he handled it pretty well. But he, he would get frustrated and and uh, um, you know he was always a great listener. He always had that capacity. But learning patience was 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 something that was you know significant for him. You know, he, I shared the one learning that he had to learn to not worry about appearance and what people thought. And, and, um, but rather just focus on what he believed was the right thing to do. And, and, um, that's not an easy thing, you know, things like that. Um, yeah. and well, it makes him human, right? He's human. Yeah. I can relate to that. The, uh, Hey, we're leaving at eight o'clock, it's two o'clock. <laughs> yeah. And patience and all of that. But I think, I think what's encouraging and inspiring is, is we all can think of leaders who wrote something like, you know, begin with the end in mind and imagine what people are going to say in your funeral. But then you hear the private version and it's not good. They never really synced up with what their public walk and private or public talk and private walk was all about. And yeah. it's really refreshing to hear, you know, Stephen Covey's son say, no, actually my dad was those things. And it's very 
you know, for the most part, as far as, you know, you get yeah. on this side of eternity, that that you can say that with with conviction and integrity is really inspiring and encouraging. I just met with a group of leaders this week and, you know, my wife and I have been married 32 years and we certainly have been through the ringer and she wrote about it and I've wrote and written about it. But, you know, they walked away saying it's really nice to see that it can end well, <laughs> you know, or at least, you know, 20 years down the road, it doesn't have to be a disaster. And I think we need more of that in the world today. So I want to pick up, uh, Stephen, because, you know, your dad wrote a book. He was a great leader. He had a team around him, et cetera, et cetera. But then under your leadership, I mean, you've led a number of organizations. The Covey brand has grown to become the largest leadership development company in the world. Um, you are also now leading Covey Link, the Covey Leadership Center, Franklin Covey Global Trust, so on and so forth. So that's that's remarkable because it got bigger after your father stepped out of active leadership and right. even after his passing. Um, can you talk a little bit about that progression and how you had that vision and what, what some of the steps were to become the premier leadership development company in the world? Yeah. Um, the first thing was that it was built upon the things my father focused, which was principles. Mm. And principles are universal. They apply everywhere, as opposed to just merely practices. And now, look, you can have good practices. They, they help illustrate a principle. But the practice is going to vary by context, by culture, by situation. But if you're teaching principles, such as integrity and fairness and kindness, you know, and empowerment and purpose and contribution, principles that apply everywhere, you know, trust that apply everywhere, then you can really go global with it. Another key idea was that it's always done from the inside out, meaning that we all look in the mirror, we start with ourselves as opposed to outside in. And, and uh, you know, where it's everything else. And that matters, the outside, you know, the context mm -hmm. matters and the structures and systems matter, but that can be disempowering for someone that is not in charge of those things. Right. If you go inside out, then that's very empowering. So those two key ideas, focus on principles of leadership and do it from the inside out, enabled us to say, there's some big ideas behind this and we can go everywhere. And then my dad really trusted and empowered us. And, and, um, and we had to figure this out, Carrie. We had to figure out a, a good business model to grow this business. And I, I at first ran the Covey Leadership Center after a while, I mean, some other people had done it and then I, they turned it over to me at some point. And, and we had to figure out a business model because at the time we had such a wonderful mission to make a difference in the world and in people's lives that we were doing everything. <laughs> we were involved in any imaginable positive initiative and being stretched way too thin. We didn't have outside capital. We had, you know, um, negative cash flow. We didn't have, uh, we, had, we had a lot of debts. We didn't have high margins in our business and we were going to run out of cash because we were just spread too thin trying to do everything. You know, being involved in communities as well as in home and family, as well as in schools, as well as in business. And, and again, undercapitalized, underfunded, trying to do everything, low margins. So we kind of had to, to become clear that if there's no margin, there's no mission. And we have a fabulous, we have a fabulous mission, but we want that mission to go forward. We also need to 
run ourselves as a responsible business. So we had to figure out a business model. I think that was one of our breakthroughs is figuring out the business model where we could license and certify and empower clients, really trust clients to do this themselves without having to bring us in, which enabled us to scale. Today, it looks easy because like everyone's doing this, but at the time it wasn't. It was kind of a breakthrough. And, and so, um, so explain that pivot a little bit because yeah. you're right. I mean, I, I was taking notes. It's like, if there's no margin, there's no mission. I'm like, boom, yeah, there it is. So what was the pivot that was sort of the breakthrough? Because I can see that a lot of particularly benevolent organizations, altruistic charities, you know, churches, and, you know, you're not a church, but very altruistic uh, goals. And you're right, principles scale beyond personalities, but you ran into this model problem that a lot of leaders are struggling with. So can you break down the breakthrough for us? Yeah, two elements of it. The first was the the paradigm of don't see this as either or, kind of either we're just a business like any other business or we're just a cause with a purpose, a mission like a, any other charitable or or mission-driven thing, don't view it as one or the other, either or. View it as an and. We are a business with a mission. We are a purpose-driven business. But we are a business. And we have to run like a business or else we won't have a mission. And if we're all mission-oriented, like we were being for a while, we were running out of cash. The bank was pulling away our line of credit because it was too big of a risk. And we were going to end up not having the impact when we were running like a business. But if we would have just, you know, shifted the pendulum completely to the other side of just saying, now we're going to run like a business now. And we would have lost our people. They, they wanted to be part of something bigger. They, they, they didn't want to be a part of a ordinary business. You know, so we would say, no, we're not, we're not an ordinary business. We're an extraordinary business with an extraordinary mission that matters. And we want to be around to help guide that mission and reach more people with that mission. And we need margin to do that. So that was the first, was the paradigm. Yep. The third alternative of a mission-driven business or a purpose-driven business or a, a business with a mission. You know, we used all those terms. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, that was the paradigm. And, and, um, and that was, you know, when we were all mission-driven, that was a little bit of a course correction to, to say we got to run ourselves like a business in order to have impact with our mission. Sure. And then the second thing was then figuring out that business model itself. And the key there was we learned how that we didn't just have, we, you know, at first it was just my dad would have to go out and give the speech or give the presentation to the client. And, you know, but there's only one of my dad. <laughs> and yeah, you know, there's only so many places right. he can go. And then it was, okay, my dad and maybe a few others can do what he can do. So we trained some and they got really good and they could do it, but that still was still limited in how many. And to bring us in, you had to hire our people and it was kind of expensive for some people. And then we just said, why, why can't everyone take these principles and apply it? Let's license this. Let's hmm. certify people to be able to do it within their own organizations. They don't have to hire us. They can just get some materials from us that will that will license, let them do this themselves. So a company certified trainer. Certified trainer. It's common today in the eighties. This was not common. And, and so it was kind of a breakthrough of you can trust people because some people would say, well, 
wouldn't they just copy all the manuals? And you know, if you're if you're certifying them, how do you know they're going to do it? Well, you, you trust them. You, you set up the agreement of, you know, for every person that goes through, they buy materials, and you just we trust that you tell us who's going through, and people responded to that. And the point is, though, we we leveraged ourselves such that we could scale this business. Mm-hmm. It looks commonplace today. It wasn't at the time. Even the publication of the Seven Habits book was debated. There were some people that felt like if you publish the book, then no one will hire you for the speech. And you and you make money on the speech, not on a book. But but our thought was, no, we'll, we'll reach more people by publishing the book. And you know what? A lot of people will still say, would you come in and talk about this to our company? And so that seemed obvious. It seems obvious now. Everyone's publishing a book. But again, I remember at the time, there was some debate that maybe that's given away too much. And, you know, it looks, you know, like, uh, how could they think that today? But those were some of the things. And so we, we basically learned how to scale ourselves, scale this as a business. And then we could have global reach. And, and then suddenly we were running ourselves as a business with a mission and that mission could reach more places and more people. You know, it's surprising. It does seem almost axiomatic today that, of course, you know, you can publish it in a book and there's still the opportunity for the talk and everything. But I remember as I I built this, what I do now, like a decade ago, that was an active debate. And I remember having a conversation with one colleague who just said, you have to stop giving your best ideas away for free. And what's interesting now, I mean, we do have a few ideas behind the paywall, but a lot of what I say is is available for free. This podcast is free. My blog is free. There's over a thousand articles on it, you know, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. I'll freely give away a keynote if I if I uh, talk to a group of leaders. It's like, here's my notes, here's my slide deck, et cetera. And it, it's a very, I'd love to explore that with you because there's a lot of content creators out there who feel like, well, you know, you have to pay to get my best ideas, et cetera. Why does that work where you know, somebody will read the seven habits of highly effective people. And then back in the day, bring your dad in or today bring someone else in to say exactly what they could have gotten in a $29 book in hardcover. Like why, why does that work as a business model? Or they'll take the course or they'll take the, whatever you're handing, the resource, the manual, the PDF, whatever, whatever additional content you've got. And they will pay for that. I think it's because the greatest value in these ideas is not just the idea itself, but the implementation and the application of the idea. And that, there's a few people that maybe can read a book and really apply it extremely well in their lives or in their organization. But most of us probably need some help and it's a process of getting better at that. And so for everyone that can apply it themselves without it, there's at least 10 that would probably say, boy, we could use this and I knew we could have some help in really getting good at this and applying this, implementing this. And I think that, yes, yeah, so for everyone that maybe you lost some business, I think you're getting at least 10 of creating interest to bring in business. So it's an abundance mentality mindset too. Yes. Yep. Not a scarcity mentality. You know, scarcity might be sound economic theory at some scale, but it's not, scarcity is not good leadership theory. Abundance is far better leadership theory. There's enough for everyone. And, 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 you know, the, the gap between, you know, what we would like, you know, the principles we're teaching and our actions and behaviors, 
it's big enough. We need to close it, work on it. There's enough for all of us. And, and, uh, you know, even my dad used to endorse all kinds of books. And sometimes people would say, they're, they're a competitor to you. And he'd say, you think I care? There's, there's enough, you know, there's not, there's enough for everyone. There's enough for all of us. There's a lot of, we want to help move people forward. And these are good ideas and that will help move people forward to have better lives. And, and so abundant and having an abundance mentality. And that's part of what I write about in this new book, Trust and Inspire, is that one of the fundamental beliefs of a Trust and Inspire leader is that I believe that there is enough for everyone. Hmm. It's an abundance mentality. So my job as a leader is I elevate caring above competing. See, if I'm in a scarcity mentality, then I got to compete for everything, compete for scarce resources, compete for attention, for time, for all these things. Yeah, and competing, there's nothing wrong with competing in the marketplace. But that, that you know, that's iron sharpens iron sometimes. That's a good thing. But we want to compete in the marketplace, but we want to collaborate and care in the workplace with each other. And the key, one of the keys of that is the idea that, that uh, there's enough for everyone. There's enough of love, of caring, of compassion, of empathy, of trust, of respect, of understanding, of creativity, of innovation, of recognition, of contribution, of everything that's good. There's enough of. So, you know, I don't need to compete. I need to complete others and, and, and so forth. And that's, that's a mindset, a paradigm. I learned it from my father first. And, you know, it's not his idea. It's out there. Yeah. But, but, you know, he just packaged it in a way that was accessible. The idea of an abundance mentality. Hmm. So this is your third book on trust. And I have probably referred, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of people to read The Speed of Trust. I found that so, so helpful. When trust is high, uh, costs go down and speed goes up. When trust is it. low, right? What happens? The opposite. It's costs go up and speed goes down. It's just a, a fascinating organizational study. And once I read it, I felt like, oh, my whole life just flashed before my eyes. <laughs> I saw it. It's, it's such a great paradigm. But this is book number three on trust. And it was interesting because you, you make the, the, the statement at the beginning that command and control is dead. And I got I to gotta give you credit. You kind of own me because the, the version that I had of a command and control leader is somebody who's probably in his or her 70s now, who probably should have retired a while ago <laughs> in a suit, trying to grab everyone by the lapels and go, all right, you do what I say my way or the highway. But it's way more nuanced than that. Like the examples you give in the book suggest that command and control is still alive and well, even if it doesn't have the stereotype like boomer, elder generation, you know, my way or the highway kind of leader behind it. Can you tell us in your view what command and control leadership really yeah. is, even as it shows up today? Actually, here's how it shows up today. See, what you described, kind of the stereotypical command and control of the older person, kind of out of touch, That's that might be the authoritarian command and control of, of the industrial age. Sure. Most people aren't there anymore. What's happened is we've become more advanced, more sophisticated. I call it we're more enlightened and we've added mm -hmm. things like mission and emotional intelligence and strengths and a lot of different elements that are important to have that are better. But too often our 
our fundamental mindset and paradigm is still scripted in the old model. It's just, we're a lot better version of it. I call it- We're softer now. It's I, yeah, still command I call and control. Enlightened yeah. command and control. Mm. And so it's a far better version of it, but it's still only different by degree, not in kind. We're still trying to kind of, um, you know, contain people instead of really right. unleash them. Sometimes we try to control situations and, and people even instead of truly unleash them. We try to motivate people through carrot and stick motivation instead of inspire them. And, and, um, and so, you know, we're trying to get results through people, which is not bad, but people are just the means to an end instead of getting results in a way that grows people. And, and so, again, it's a kinder, gentler version of it, but there's still maybe more of a desire of, I, I need to be in control. I need to make sure the outcomes are good. I mean, it could be well, you know, well intended right. that, you know, and just even the expression, if you want to get something done, you have to do it yourself type of thing. And that's and an example of it. Yeah. It's very easy. So it's not so much the authoritarian, authoritarian leader, my way or the highway, but more like I got to watch over this project pretty close <laughs> to make sure they do it right. Cause I'm not sure that they can or will. And, you know, and they may not communicate that, but their language, their, their behavior might communicate that I don't fully trust you. And so I, so it's those kind of things that people don't feel completely trusted. It's, I would say this, it's that we're still managing people. And, and I distinguish that in Trust Inspire, you manage things and you lead people. Hmm. We try to manage people as if they were things in today's world, we're going to end up with no people and a lot of things. Mm. Is, they'll go elsewhere. People don't want to be managed. People want to be led. They want to be trusted. They want to be inspired. So that's kind of how it shows up. And yeah. I'll, I'll give you one little example. <clears throat> and this is one that some of our audience will resonate with. It was a, a wonderful pastor of a church. Great man. Great person in every respect. Completely trustworthy. He was a good model of what he taught. <clears throat> he also was very inspiring um, as, as a person, his life and, and the, his caring about people. And so he did care about people and he connected with them really good. And so, and he, uh, he actually described himself as a servant leader. The problem was he had a hard time letting go. He had a hard time trusting and truly empowering and truly trusting people. Now he would do it at, at a surface level, but boy, it was hard. So he'd turn over responsibilities for a youth activity to the youth committee to take the activity and run with it. But then, you know, he'd swoop in at the last minute and kind of take it over and, and mm -hmm. take responsibility mm -hmm. and just make sure that it all happened the way he wanted it. And, and then people, the youth leaders, the, the, the youth would say, why, why is he doing this if he doesn't trust us to do it? You know, why is he telling us we have a responsibility and then he takes it over? And so again, this was not his intent, but his style got in the way of his intent. His intent was good. It was to serve. It was to bless. But, it, but he had a hard time letting go. He had a hard time truly trusting. And for good reasons, he was just concerned about the outcome. But he needed to believe in the people and extend more trust to them and give them the space to operate 
And, and I think it's very easy to fall into that trap. And so, so in this book, I try to highlight, you know, what you need to do as a trust inspired leader, the three stewardships to model, to trust, to inspire. And this leader was modeling and he was inspiring, but he wasn't trusting. And for wow. someone else, it might be <clears throat> they're a good model and they trust, but they don't inspire. And, you know, inspire is not just giving a great sermon or giving a great presentation at work. Inspiring is connecting with people through caring and belonging and then connecting people to purpose, to meaning, to contribution. And that's all learnable. Everyone can inspire. It's a learnable skill. Or in another case, maybe the person's not a good model. Like the like you were saying, Carrie, that we've seen the public person that's good in public, not in private, and they're not modeling the very thing they're teaching. So any of those three areas can we could fall short. So it's a journey, it's a process to model, to trust, to inspire people. But that's what people want today. They want to be mm-hmm. trusted. They want to be inspired. And if we can become that kind of leader and let let go of kind of our need to be in charge, our need to be in control, and recognize that control is an illusion. Principles are in control. Not, you know, not no one is. And, and there's actually more control in a high trust culture than there is in a rules-based culture. You know, so it's just it's just kind of a complete rethinking of a lot of elements of of our leadership of, you know, the leader's in charge and the leader has to guarantee the outcomes. Well, no, leaders get results in a way that grows the people. That's the kind of leadership that's needed today. Well, the examples you give are really interesting. Like you talk about, for example, the big revolution we've had over the last two years in working from home. Yeah. And right now I'm reading on a regular basis uh, attempts by CEOs. There was a call from a major North American bank that's like, we need you guys in the office more often because we can't see what you're doing. I was reading a piece in the New York Times recently about companies that are, it's a growth industry right now, but basically installing spyware on computers to see whether your remote workers are actually working, things like that. Are those examples of command and control leadership that are still there? Okay, so let's break down. Because I talk to a lot of leaders and they're like, yeah, I don't know this whole working from home thing. And I don't know about whether I can really trust my team. Like if I can't see them, how do I know that they're actually working? And of course, as you know, the next generation is not putting up with it. They're like, you want me in the office five days a week? See ya. So how do you create a trust and inspire culture in say a hybrid or remote workforce? Yeah. How, how do you do that? You, you do it through building the agreement together up front. Mm. Where you, just like my dad did with me with green and clean, but now this in a yeah. professional setting where you clarify expectations around the trust being given and you mutually agree to a process of accountability to those expectations in a way that the person can hold themselves accountable first for themselves and you don't have to hover over and micromanage. And that could be tighter or looser, depending upon the context, the situation, the risk involved, and the credibility of the person. You know, if the person's kind of new to the job and they need a lot of coaching and help, then maybe the accountability process is more frequent, where they report back on, here's what's happening, here's what we're doing, here's how it's going, so that you can maybe give advice or counsel or coach along the way. More frequently, if and, and and the higher the risk, it's more going to be more frequent accountability. But if the risk is moderate or lower, and the person's really talented and skilled and developed and credible, 
can be far less frequent. Maybe they just report back routinely. So you build the agreement. It's not a one-size-fits-all agreement. It's contextual to the situation and to the person of, of expectations and accountability, just like my dad did with me on Green and Clean. Mm-hmm. But the point is, the agreement governs, and, and there's control built into the agreement. And it doesn't have to be you as the leader hovering over, micromanaging, and, 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 that's, and, and too often that happens. And, and you've, you've nailed it, Gary, in this new world of work, remote work, hybrid work, intentionally flexible work, combinations. It requires trust yeah. to, for it to work because there are some people that are working remotely who don't feel trusted. They feel like they're now just being micromanaged from a distance because maybe there wasn't an option or maybe because society is dictating that I've got to do this in order to keep my people. But mm-hmm. you won't keep them if they don't feel trusted still, even if they're working from home and they don't feel trusted. And the the sales of this surveillance software is up 300% plus. I know. And, and I know. you know, which is basically saying, we don't know if you're working. So we're putting this in place. Now they'll, they'll couch it as this is productivity software or what have you. Yeah. But yeah. employees, people can feel when it's not really that. And when it's really that you don't trust me. I don't trust you. And, yeah. and, and so, but, but, you know, th- that's, so whether or not you're got hybrid or remote work, you still have the question of, do you trust your people and you build the agreement together with your people so that you can extend that trust in a smart way so that the agreement governs and not you having to hover over and micromanage. And it really is a challenge for all of us today to, to ask the question, do we really trust my people? Do we really trust my team? Have we built the agreement? And, 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 the, and, the, and the companies and the leaders that do that best are going to win because they'll win this war for talent. This is the new imperative for every organization today. We've got to build a high trust culture that inspires people. It's the only way we're going to attract people, retain them, engage them, and inspire them, bring out the best in them, is if there's a high trust culture that, that inspires. If it's a command and control type culture, and again, enlightened command and control, even I, I know that you know most are moved away from the authoritarian, but even if it's kind of like, you know, it's still a compliance-driven, um, you know, hierarchical process of, of, uh, of, you know, there's control built in everywhere as opposed to real empowerment, real extension of trust, real tapping into inspiration. You're not going to keep the people. They, they'll go to a place where they feel trusted and where they feel inspired and connected to a purpose. And, and um, so that's how we're going to win this war for talent is, is with a new style of leadership. You know, to, to quote Marshall Goldsmith, what got us here won't get us there. And maybe the enlightened command and control has worked, but it's not going to work going forward in this new world of work in remote and hybrid work with these new generations coming up that want a completely different type of relationship of how they're managed, how they're led. And, and, um, and where people have choices and options. It's also not going to work in a world where you need to collaborate and innovate constantly to stay relevant in a changing, disruptive world where everything's yeah. changing so fast. We've got to innovate fast. You can't innovate without trust. You can't command and control your way to collaboration. You can't command mm. and control your way to innovation. 
Trust and inspire is how you'll do it. So I call it, I mentioned two places. You got to first win in the workplace with your own people and then win in the marketplace through collaboration and innovation. And you need trust for both. You need, you need a different way to lead for both. And I call it trust and inspire in contrast to the enlightened command and control. Well, we have a couple minutes left and I want to drill down um, on a couple of issues because I'm thinking about a leader who says, okay, that's great. I want to be able to trust my team. I get it. I get it. It makes sense. But I got some lazy workers. I got some people I don't know whether I can trust. So walk them through, like, what are a couple of the basics of getting an agreement? Because I agree with you. I mean, I lead an entirely remote team, have for the last seven years. And, you know, this is my office and I'm the only person in it. But I'm not, I don't spend my time worrying that they're not being productive. I'm not installing spyware. We set up that agreement and I measure outputs. I coach them and, you know, they over deliver. I don't even care how many hours they work. It's like, you don't measure hours. Like you measure, you measure effectiveness, you measure productivity, you measure that kind of thing. And I want to make sure that they have a healthy lifestyle. So, I mean, but for the leader who's starting out in that realm, trying to figure out how do you, what are some keys to like creating that agreement so you get your whole team to buy in? Yeah, beautiful. I love it. First of all, I love what you're doing, Carrie. You know, it sounds like you, you, you're building the agreements, you're extending the trust, and then people perform. They do. And, it's and amazing. It and sometimes I have to say, put the, the brakes on. You're getting too tired. Like, take some time off. Yeah. 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 You're sometimes telling them, take, you no know, take a vacation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, just kind of the opposite. And, and, um, but look, you, you're, you're getting their best thinking, their best work, their best creativity. They'll also, you know, when they feel inspired like that, they stay with you. They, they perform better, but they also feel like they're being, their well being's being improved. So you're, it's it's good for the results. It's good for the people both. Yeah, so, yeah. so it's the, it's this idea that you're, there's two key elements of building this agreement. I call it the stewardship agreement. Mm. You know, in a stewardship is a job with a trust. So you're you're extending trust to people around getting jobs done. So you build the agreement together, and it's going to have these two elements of clarifying expectations and practicing accountability and trying to find this balance. And so I see there's five elements of a good stewardship agreement. Three belong to clarifying expectations, two to practicing accountability. So the first is desired results. What is it that we are after? And you said it, focus on outcomes, on results, not on methods, not on means to the end. Focus on the ends. My dad, green and clean. Mm-hmm. How you do it it's is not that, sign you know, in every morning at seven fifty nine a.m. Here's so. how you have to do it, and you sign yeah. in, and you got to be, you got to have FaceTime, you got to work this many hours. I care about outcomes, results. Mm-hmm. So, desire results. What is it that we are after? And then the second um, element of a stewardship agreement is guidelines. Mm-hmm. Within what parameters? So that you know. It's, I mean, because you can't just say, okay, whatever you want, just get the result. And, and then they violate ethical or legal norms or, you know, and, you know, within, within what parameters, what, you know, are there guardrails? And, and, um, you know, my dad told me, you can't paint the lawn. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you can't paint green. it green. <laughs> you can't paint it green. <laughs> and that was a guideline. <laughs> so that, right. that was a guardrail right. to make sure I wasn't just cutting corners and, you know, shortcutting sure. this. So within what guidelines? 
and you know what within what parameters and and that's kind of uh that's really helpful to make sure that that in a sense there's a little bit of quote control built in with that so that people aren't just wild out there doing things that you've learned are out of bounds won't work or or too risky or what have you you can establish some guidelines um then the third element of a stewardship agreement is resources. What do we have to work with? So you're setting people up to win. If you're going to say you're going to be responsible for these results within these guidelines or parameters, here's the resources you have to work with. And they could be human resources, other people they can work with, financial, technical, but you're kind of making sure that they're set up to win. And that's all around clarifying expectations. We're getting these results within these guidelines with these resources. And then, the, then we move to the practice accountability part. So the fourth is, how do we know how we're doing? Mm. And that's the accountability thing of that you set it up so that the person evaluates themselves against the standards of the desired results. And they report back to you about how they're doing against what they're doing. And that's where it could be tighter or looser depending upon you know, where they are in their development where, and how risky the task you're giving them is. And, and you know, maybe it's tighter when there's high risk and they're not very developed yet, looser when there's moderate or lower risk and they're very developed of how frequent that accountability is. But the point is, they know more than you know mm-hmm. about how they're doing. Mm-hmm. They know if they're mm-hmm. really giving their best effort or if they've got a whole lot more they could give, but they're not, they're doing the minimum to keep staying on the job. So let them judge themselves. My dad says, you know, green and clean. Mm-hmm. I knew I was the lawn wasn't green and clean. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty clear. <laughs> and right. I wasn't doing it. So, so um, you you know, they basically they report back on accountability, but they they judge themselves first. Now, look, you can say, well, gosh, how can I help you? Because we got to do better here. You, you you still can play that role, but it's more of a coach, not a manager. And then finally. You know, what are the consequences of achieving these results? And so that's the consequences, could be rewards and, and you know, the positive things and even potentially the negative things that, you know, if we don't achieve this and it's not going to work here at this company, we've, we've got to get these outcomes in the long run to, to succeed. So it could be natural consequences. It could be specific consequences, positive, you know, rewards, negative of, you know, that, that we, you know, if I'm a salesperson, I've got to sell. And if I don't sell, I'm not going to remain as a salesperson at some yeah. point, you know? So it's, but it's not a surprise to anybody. We build it in to the agreement. So those are five elements of a good stewardship agreement, so good. desired results, guidelines, resources. That's all around clarifying expectations then accountability and consequences. Yeah. And accountability, like Chris McChesney, we talked about, and you've worked with Chris. I mean, he was on talking all about all about the four disciplines of execution, four DX. And that's something my company has used. And Beautiful. it's so clear. I, I wonder, this is a theory of mine. I don't know whether it's true. You've done a lot more research on this than mine, but it seems like a lot of command and control leaders, one of the reasons that they end up um, swooping in and correcting and everything is they've never been clear about the standards. They're not clear about the goals. They just keep it all inside. And therefore, their team doesn't even know what they're trying to accomplish. It's like, well, I thought we were supposed to do this. Is that true of Abs- command and control leaders? Absolutely. 
because yeah. again, information is power and they want to kind of be in charge mm. and this and that. So they mm. don't take that time to really build the agreement up front with clarity around, mm. around expectations, around results, around guidelines, around resources. And because they like to kind of control it, own it and, and keep it. And so that they're the boss and they're in charge. But if you don't take the time to build the agreement up front, you'll pay the price down the line and you'll revert back to what looks and feels like command and control to people where you're now not trusting them and you're hovering over them, checking on their project more frequently than what they thought, you know, because you're worried about it and they're not as clear. Yeah. So you pay a price when you don't spend the time up front to build the agreement. So it takes some time, but then you go fast. I like to say this with people, fast is slow and slow is fast. So if I kind of just try to dictate and move fast, you know, I'll tell you when you need it. In the long run, people won't be empowered. And it'll take you a lot more time to catch them up and to educate them and move them along. If you take the time up front, go slow up front in the sense that you take the time to build the agreement, expectations, accountability, the training, the development as needed. My dad took two weeks to teach me how to do green and clean. Mm-hmm. You know, as a, he didn't turn it over on a, you know, on a, half hour training session. <laughs> it was a two week process. And, and um, so you take the time up front, you go slow, then you go fast. My dad never had to talk to me again about taking care of the yard the rest of my life. And, you know, so, and again, that's a simple example I know, but it, it teaches the principles of what happens. So building that stewardship agreement is vital. Um, and, and, uh, and too often we skip that because we're always, Focused, you know, we're, we're, we got to be efficient. Be efficient with things. Be effective with people. Manage things. Lead people. But because we get so good at management, oftentimes, unknowingly, we start to manage people as if they were things. Hmm. And not going to work in this new world. That won't, that won't get us there where we need to go. It's a new world of work. We need a new way to lead. Trust and inspire. Oh. Stephen, thank you so much. It's been a rich interview. The book is called Trust and Inspire, How Truly Great Leaders Unleash Greatness in Others. And I would recommend the whole series, uh, including The Speed of Trust. It's been just great to spend some time with you. If people want to find, obviously, books available everywhere, where can they find you and your work online these days? Simple website yes. or social? Yeah. Um, so social media, uh, LinkedIn, um, Stephen M. R. Covey. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, at Stephen M. R. Covey. But also go to our website, trustandinspire.com. Trustandinspire.com. And they, the and is spelled out. And um, and there's some resources, tools there that you might find helpful. If I could just share one last thought I have, oh, please Terry. Do. Yeah, please. Um, that that uh, I think our listeners will find and viewers will find useful. That the starting point, see, when you, when you read the, I thought of this when you, gave the subtitle of the book, you know, trust and inspire how truly great leaders unleash greatness in others. It starts by us, um, you know, by having the paradigm, the mindset that people have greatness inside of them. So my job as a leader is to unleash their potential, not to try to control them or contain them. So it's a a stewardship I have to see the greatness in people, not just the high potential. See, by definition, if we have high potentials, it's kind of implying that others aren't, (laughs) 
that they're, you know, maybe we don't see the greatness. And I love how Thoreau said it. It's not what you look at that matters. It's what you see. Mm. So start by seeing the potential in people and start by seeing that potential and then communicating that potential to others so that they can come to see it in themselves. And then by developing that potential, by giving them opportunities and, and training and things to develop those talents, and then by unleashing that potential, by truly empowering and giving them the opportunity to run with it. So you see, communicate, develop, unleash potential, unleash greatness that's inside of people. And we're like seeds. You know, people are like seeds. You know, our job as a leader, we're a gardener, not a mechanic. A mechanic is, you know, it's a mechanistic system. And, you know, and, and that's more command and control. A gardener, you're, it's an organic system. That the life, the power is in the seed. Our job as a gardener is to create, to create the conditions for the seed to grow and flourish. Our job as a leader is to create the conditions and remove the barriers for the people to grow and flourish. But the life, the power is in the people. We're just trying to create the conditions for them to, to grow. But it starts by, do I see it? And then do I help them come to see it by communicating it, by developing it, by unleashing it? That is the starting point for a trust and inspire leader. You know, I have a growth mindset, not just for myself, but for everyone. And I think that that is how we should look at each other. Let's treat people according to their potential, not just their behavior. And they'll become that person. And we have a stewardship as leaders to help bring about that person. And I just think in my own life, not my dad, my mom, they were trust and inspire leaders for me. I'll bet. Carrie, you've had trust and inspire people in your life. You know, friend, coach, mentor, pastor, um, you know, leader. I'll bet most of our listeners and viewers, most if not all have had someone, someone in your life who's been a trust and inspire person for you, who believed in you, saw your potential, gave you an opportunity, took a chance on you, helped you come to believe in yourself. Maybe they believed in you more than you believed in yourself, what that did for you. Look, we probably have all had someone like that or maybe multiple people in some cases. Think about what that did, how you responded to it. Did you need to be managed? No, you were on fire. No, it wasn't the command and control people who inspired yeah. us. Nope. Yeah, no. you were, you brought yeah. up the best in you. And, and look how you saw yourself differently from it. Now, so I, I ask all, all our listeners and viewers to reflect back on such a person for you. I would invite you, thank that person. Even years later, perhaps, maybe you've thanked him already, but thank him again. You can say, Stephen talked about Trust Inspire and to thank the Trust Inspire leader in their life. And then my final invitation to you is to ask this question, for whom could you become that kind of leader? Just like someone was for you. Can you think of someone for whom you could become that kind of leader? Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's someone at work. But if you could do it with one, you could do it with another and then another and another. And I think becoming trust and inspire, sometimes how we'll become, you know, further down this path on this journey is by even starting with one relationship. Hmm. Just like someone was for you, what if you could be that for another? So I invite you, find another person for whom you want to become a trust and inspire leader. Start there. So I hope you've you enjoyed this and trustandinspire.com. I, I hope you love the book and I'm really grateful, Carrie, to you 
for this opportunity to be on your fabulous leadership podcast. Wow. Thank you so much, Stephen. It's been a joy and nice hearing about your background, uh, the growth of Covey under your leadership and so many insights. And this is going to be something that's going to help me be a better leader. So I want to thank you so much for your time today. And thanks for the new book as well. Appreciate you, Stephen. Thank you, Carrie. Great to be with you. You know, trust is so important. And if you want to reduce turnover and you really want to make a difference with the people that you lead and actually feel good about the team that you lead, uh, trust is critical. We've got notes in the show notes to everything that we talked about in this conversation. You can find those over on my website. Go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 520. You'll find everything there. And that's also the hub for all of my writing for the Art of Leadership Academy, uh, where we now have almost 1,300 leaders in the Art of Leadership Academy. You'll find show notes for every episode we've ever done and a whole lot more over at kerryneuhoff.com. I want to thank our partners, Promedia Fire. You can get your communication and creative work done for less than the cost of a staff hire by going to promediafire.com slash carry and by Compassion International. You can meet a practical need for a child in poverty this holiday season by going to compassion.com slash giving tree slash carry. And I'd love for you to help out with that. So next episode, we're going to talk about, well, AI. I have been fascinated by this and I found Dion Nicholas came highly recommended. We have a conversation about artificial intelligence AGI, ANI, ASI, and how it's impacting your life and where the future will take us. Here's an excerpt. I think nuclear is probably the best example of it, right? And there's probably maybe a a single-digit handful number of technologies in the past, in human history, that that are um, equivalent in power and potential, but also equivalent in potential to damage. With nuclear, we do have probably today the ability to perpetually power the energy of all humans on earth. Um, you know, that plus or minus solar, like there's a few other things. Um, but we also have this, you know, dangerous ability to literally wipe out all humans on earth, right? Like, you know, no, 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 um, no way to sugarcoat that. And so, um, somehow we have survived so far. That's next time. Also, great conversation with Tim Tebow, Joey and Christy Spears, Sent Marshall from the Dallas Mavericks, Chad Veach, Sharon Hade Miller, Brian Koppelman, Chris Anderson, Patrick Lencioni, James Clear, Lisa Turkhurst, and so much more coming up on the podcast. Thank you, everybody, for what you do in sharing the word. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a shout out on social media. I'm Carrie Newhoff on Instagram. I am C. Newhoff on Twitter, Facebook, and other platforms. And thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, also leave a rating and review. And I want to give you something. A lot of you are thinking about how to build your online presence. I have a free mastermind where you will learn how to do that, how to find your dream audience, and how to get them to notice and engage with you. So whether you're just starting out or have been online for years, this free mastermind will give you insight into the timeless principles that will help your message and content stand out. So If you want to get in on that, go to influencekickstarter.com. That's influencekickstarter.com to start building your online presence today. And it's free. Well, I hope today's conversation helped you thrive in life and leadership. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll catch you next time on the podcast.